This morning we're in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. In 1982, it was said, worldliness is the greatest threat to the church today. In other ages, the church has suffered from dead orthodoxy, live heresy, flight from the world, and other maladies. But the painful truth today is that the church is guilty of massive accommodation to the world. That was said in 1982. Now, well, you might be able to say that, you know, those maladies are still around in varying degrees. It does seem that snuggling up to the thinking and the loves of this lost world of unbelievers, of, uh, of snuggling up to the ungodly desires, has become somewhat of a normal practice. If that was said in 1982, imagine where are we at today. Francis Schaeffer, who was a pastor in the 1900s, said, Tell me what the world is saying today, and I'll tell you what the church will be saying in seven years. Scary thought. Scary how we've seen some of that come true over the past decades. Worldliness has often been a plague of the church, even an enemy from within it. The desire and love for the things of the world and for the world's approval stunts spiritual growth and tears down thriving ministries. It is a danger that we must all be on guard against because it can be an ever-present danger within our midst. But the Apostle John can help us very dearly in this area. As As we look at 1 John, the letter of 1 John, we see that he, he writes to help the believers know if they have eternal life. He would say later, you know, write these things so that you would know. So that you would know you have eternal life. That you would have assurance. He writes so that the church would think right. Believe the truth. Know the truth. Therefore, they would live right in light of that truth. Living for the Lord. And out of that would flow a right love. They would love God. They would love one another as a testimony to their belief, as a testimony to what God has done. Now, in chapter 1, we see John make this amazing statement that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. God is morally pure. He is perfect. He is righteous. He is holy. There's no darkness, no corruption within Him, no deceit, no evil or wicked ways. And so, in light of God being like that, His children ought to reflect the same things. In chapter 2, He unfolds that the amazing truth that Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins. He is the one who satisfied the wrath of God. And even though we deserve that wrath, God has shown amazing love by sending the Son to be that propitiation. And the one who knows God walks in obedience to God. And there will be evidence of the believer's genuine faith, genuine salvation in how they live and how they love others. A love for others, in fact, is a testimony that you know the God of love. And so he turns... In verses 12 through 14, right before our section here, to address the believers. 
to address the church, to provide them an affirmation, to provide them an encouragement. He's given a lot of weighty truths and a lot of, you know, if you say you know God, but you walk in darkness, then you really are not of God. You live a lie. You still walk in darkness. If you hate your brother, you still abide in darkness. But he turns in verses 12 through 14 to give a little breather, a little sense of encouragement to the church. He affirms their faith. He affirms that their sins have been forgiven. He affirms that, or he reminds them rather, of the stages of spiritual maturity from the child to the young man to the adult. And all through those stages, there is this sense that they know God and they are living for God, which brings victory over the evil one. It brings victory over the evil one as the word of God abides in them. And he, so he encourages them saying, I see this in you. However, on the heels of that, he provides a warning. He provides a warning to them, addressing, a warning that addresses what their relationship with the world ought to be, or what it ought not to be, rather. And we see in this warning that we must be aware of the worldliness that can plague the church, that we must be on guard against this love for the world. So let's read our passage this morning, beginning in verse 15. John writes, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. In this passage, John gives four reasons why we must heed the warning to not love the world. And he does this so that we would know if we're a believer. And these reasons flow after an initial command. An initial command that prohibits us from loving the world. We'll see the four reasons are that there is a conflict of loving the world... There's a corrupt nature of the world. The world is crumbling. The crumbling of the world and the certainty, though, of obedience to God. We're gonna, we'll go through all of those. But here's the point. Here's John's main point. A Christian is to love God and not the sinful persuasions of the world. A Christian is to love God and not the sinful persuasions of the world. Or we could, we could say it a little differently. If you love the world and its sinful persuasions, then you do not love God, and you will pass away along with the fallen world. So let's look at the first, the first reason, the conflict of loving the world in verse 15. This is the first reason we're not to love the world, and this reason is it presents a conflict. Primarily, this conflict is between two clashing objects of our devotion. Two clashing objects, either loving the world or loving God. John gives here the first imperative of this whole letter. It's the only command in this section, and it is a negative command. He tells us not to do something. 
Specifically, not to love the world or the things in it. And this imperative, this command, is really a driving force behind these verses. So let's ask the question, well, what does he mean by love? What does he mean by the word love? Well, the word here is from the agape word family. We're familiar with hearing that term used. But here it has the meaning of to have a high esteem for something or a satisfaction within something, as if to take pleasure in it, to take pleasure in it. Love in this context can be understood as setting one's affection and devotion upon something. It's that, that pursuit of pleasure. And this affection, this pursuit of pleasure affects and impacts how we live. It possesses a sense of dedication to something. Dedication that you long to be satisfied by this object, whatever it is. By this thought, by this belief, by this pursuit. Paul would use the same idea of love in 2 Timothy 4, verses 9 and 10, where he writes to Timothy saying, Do your best to come to me soon. And then in verse 10 he says, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas had set his affections upon the present world. He found pleasure in those things, so much so that he deserted Paul. He abandoned him. We see this usage also in John 3.19, where there John would write, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. People found satisfaction and delight in darkness, in sin, so that they set their devotion upon pursuing more sin, more selfish gain, more selfish pleasure. Now, when John says here, do not love the world, the way he structures or uses this command, this imperative, is what we call a present tense. So that means it has an ongoing aspect to it, an ongoing movement. It's not just a one and done. It is to be an ongoing rejection of the world. It is not something we only do once when God saves us and then we can go back to it. Yeah, I... Well, I trusted in Christ. I stopped loving the world that one day. Don't ask me how my life is ten years later, but, you know, I did it then. But it's to be an ongoing pursuit. It's to be an active pursuit. The word here is active. We're not to be passive about it and just wait for it to happen like we will naturally just fall into this rejection of the world and its sinful desires. We are to actively pursue turning away from them. To purposely present a continual resistance to being devoted to this world. Now in the context of what he had just previously said in verses 12 through 14, where he had previously affirmed the faith and their devotion to God and their overcoming even of the evil one, he still provides this warning that the battle is not over. We know the victory is sure. 
We know the outcome is sure. Christ wins. And all those who belong to Christ win with Him. But as we still live this life on this earth, in these bodies, the battle is not completely over. We must always be on guard. Always be on guard. And if we stop being on guard towards these these poles, these affections for these worldly pursuits, if we stop and we put our guard down, then that's not a good sign. It's actually a bad sign. It's a sign that you would start to question, did you know the God of light to begin with? We're to not have unbridled passion for the world. Now, we need to pause for a moment and ask, what do we mean by world? Use that word a lot. John uses this word a lot. What does it mean? Well, the term world can have various meanings. Everything from adornment to the universe to people to the system of human existence and on and on. So how do we know what he's talking about? Well, Bible Study 101 teaches us that context is king. Context helps us determine what is meant here. Here, John has set up really a dichotomy in his letter. Light, dark, children of God, children of the devil, love, hate. And here we see uh, John using this term world to parallel the idea of darkness. John's using the word world here to mean the whole system of evil that is hostile to God. The whole system of evil that's hostile to God, and that includes the things within it. Not just a general idea, a big overarching scheme, but then all the things the way the scheme is played out. So it refers here to everything that is in opposition to God, everything that rebels against His commands, His goodness, and His people. It's that mindset that we see Isaiah pronounce woes against in Isaiah 5.20 where he says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. The world is that system of thinking, hence you could say that worldview, that what is evil is actually good. Paul himself would reference the world with this meaning in Romans 12.2 where he says, do not be conformed to this world. We're not to be shaped by the sinful, sinful influences of our culture. It's presuppositions. It's worldview. The thinking pattern of the lost. The thinking pattern, really, of those who hate God. We're to not shape our life and our thinking around that. And naturally, at one point, we were like that. But God changed us. God saved us. And so now we must actively pursue putting those things that draw back towards it away and said, pursue living and loving God. God forbids the type of love that pursues those worldly pleasures. It's a forbidden love. It is the love that God hates. So, then you might ask, along with me, well, wait a second, what about John 3.16? 
Doesn't it say that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son? Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Yes, it does say that. And yes, John 3.16 is true. We don't cast John 3.16 out because we see the term world and love used somewhere else in a different way. God did express his love towards the world by sending his son to die for sinners. God showed love towards people, undeserving people. And like God, we show love towards people. And as Jesus teaches, we show love even towards our enemies, which, by the way, is extremely countercultural even today. What's the thought today? Hey, you do something wrong to me, you must pay for it. I must demand something from you to get back at you so that I am lifted up and you are torn down. But Jesus even teaches us to love our enemies. We see in Matthew 5, 44, he says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So it's not, that, it's not the people we refuse to love. Instead, to not love the world means to refuse to set your affections and your devotion upon things which are sinful, things that are self-gratifying, things that are God-dishonoring. God dishonoring. So we can love people and we are to love people beginning with our brothers and sisters in the faith. But at the same time, we do not love the sinful things of the world. So, then follow with me here. Does that mean that I have to reject anything enjoyable and go live in some secluded cave up on Mount Rainier to never run into anybody again? Absolutely not. Though people in church history have done that. They have become hermits and go off and live secluded out in the mountains or in the desert or in a monastery where they try to do away with the passions of their flesh and so they roll around in thorn bushes in order to curb the sexual desires they might have or they beat themselves with sticks or rods to try to purge the sin out of themselves. But that's not the point here. It's not that we can't enjoy things in life. God has given us things to enjoy. We can find delight in this life, in the things of our lives, in one another, in celebrating Mother's Day. We can have fun, because if we can't have fun, then our youth ministry and our children's ministry are really out of a line. <laughs> we shouldn't have the attitude that material things are all bad and we must reject all of them. That is the thinking of some of the Gnostics John was dealing with. Material things, bad. Spiritual and knowledge things, good. So reject those things. That's not what, what he's talking about here. I mean, even think about 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That in, eating and drinking are physical things, parts of this world that we need to sustain our body. Or whatever you do. That's a pretty good job of capturing everything else. We can and are to do things in a way that delights in what God has given us, that is thankful for what God has given us. We can, in our daily life, 
can praise God and thank Him for whatever it might be that we get to do together. We get to enjoy knowing that ultimately the enjoyment comes from God and we want to honor God with that. So we're not to love the sinful passions and pursuits of the world or the things in the world. And then he goes on and he says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. This is the first real reason why we are not to love the world. If anyone loves the world, it is impossible for the love of the Father to be in him. It is incompatible for the love of the Father to be in him. Love of the Father, they're referring to our love towards God. So the way he uses the sentence, the way he sets it up is, it's a hypothetical reality. If one thing is true, then the other thing is. And he uses these, these verbs, these terms, in a present tense idea. Again, it's ongoing. So it's not just the occasional stumble that we still face. This is, if your continual affections are for self-gratifying pleasures, God-dishonoring pleasures, then you do not love the Father. Both loves cannot exist simultaneously. They're incompatible. It is either one or the other. Jesus himself gives us this illustration in Matthew 6.24 where he says no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. And then he uses the, uh, the illustration you cannot serve God in money. In a similar fashion here, John is saying we cannot love God and at the same time love the things that are opposed to God. We, we either love the world or we love God, period. There's no middle ground. So our devotion must be solely towards God. We're not to possess that must-have attitude, that must-have affection for sinful things and selfish gain. If we're going to love the Father, we, we must not have that. That if I don't get that thing, I cannot be happy I cannot be satisfied. Well, is that thing good? What is that? Well, it dishonors God. He says not to do that, but I must have it. We're not to possess that attitude. God will have no rival. James 4, 4 through 5 is very clear on this. James writes, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So a love that God hates is a love that cherishes cherishes anything above him. Let's say that again. A love that God hates is a love that cherishes anything else above him. And John is warning the believers that they must take care to prioritize loving God above everything else. So this is the first reason John gives why we are forbidden to love the world. It is because it creates a conflict. And this conflict is that a believer cannot truly love the Father and yet secretly love all that is opposed to Him. Let me think about why would we want to love the world? It does not love us back. The world did not die for your sins upon a cross. 
Rather, it is Jesus alone who paid for your sins. He alone is worthy of your devotion. Not the world. So our affection must be purposely set away from the sinful world and instead set on God. What do you love? What gets you excited and captures your devotion? Now where is God in that? Where is, does that fall in relation to your devotion and excitement for God? So John begins with a command of what we're not to do. We're to refuse the love, the things that set themselves up against Him. And so next we see the source of these worldly desires. Our second reason why we are not to love the world is because all that is in the world is not from the Father. We see the corrupt nature of the world. Verse 16, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. These worldly things, they find their source in the fallen system that is enslaved to the devil. Their very essence, as John expands upon here, is that they originate in corruption. John expands upon these things, what these things of the world are. They're the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now the term desire here that he uses, it's not always a negative word, but in this context, remember context, 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 context. In this context that John has set up, it definitely has negative connotations. To long for something and crave something. That's why I like how the NASB translates it as lust. Lust of the flesh. Lust of the eyes. So he begins, the lust of the flesh or the desires of the flesh. What does he mean by flesh? But one source says, all parts of the body constitute a totality known as flesh, which is dominated by sin to such a degree that wherever flesh is, all forms of sin are likewise present, and no good thing can live in the flesh. All right, so where he uses the term flesh, there's no good thing there. Sin is present. We see the description of this, uh, this mindset or this state of the flesh in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, where Paul would write, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In case you didn't catch it, that is a very negative way to paint the reality of a lost world, of fleshly desires, of fleshly allegiance, children of wrath, sons of disobedience. Paul himself later would use this term in Romans 7, verse 18, where he says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. So for believers, the, ram- the remaining part of us in this life that we strive to put away, that we look forward to the day when the Lord brings us home and we get 
we are glorified with Him. That remaining part that is rebellious against God and desires sin, we would call the flesh still. And we are to strive to mortify that flesh, to kill it. Paul would say in Romans 8.13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So here flesh and body are used parallel. So the things that are associated with the flesh are the sinful desires of man, and they must be put off. So what does he mean by desires of the flesh? It is anything which we in our sinfulness long for that we may be satisfied apart from God. Anything we long for to be satisfied apart from God. Some of these are blatant sins, obvious sins. Galatians 5 lists them. The fruit of the flesh, everything from sexual immorality, idolatry, fits of anger, divisions, drunkenness, and so on. But it can also be the subtle longings of our heart. Those sneaky, subtle longings. John Calvin summarized this well, saying, What then is the lust or desire of the flesh? But when worldly men, seeking to live softly and delicately, are intent only on their own advantage. Those subtle sins of, I'm going to live for my glory, my advantage. No one can necessarily see that, but it's going on within. Rather, in fact, there is one who sees it, and that is God. These secret delights. Not outwardly seen, but inwardly craved and pursued as more important than obedience and worship to God above all. Paul would say in Romans thirteen fourteen, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So that's the desires of the flesh. Well, what else? The desires of the eyes are another thing of the world, or the lusts of the eyes. Isn't it true? We must be so careful with our eyes. The desire of our eyes is to long for things you see with discontentment. It's the temptation to feed and stir a sinful desire to have something, to see something and want more of it. Proverbs twenty twenty seven says, Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied, and never satisfied are the eyes of man. Isn't that true? I would say just turn on TV and watch commercials and you see that played out, but I don't know if that's a good pursuit either. Because it just stirs more up. i got to have that. I need the next new and greatest phone. I need this, this brand new car. I need this. I need that. If I don't get it, oh, my life is unenjoyable. One glance is something of the world and we can easily have the, the stirring up of sinful cravings if we're not on guard. It's like a, a kid who is at the store and they see the toy section off in the distance, just a glimpse, and they know it's there. And once they've seen it, it's a full-on meltdown to, until they go to the toy section and find the perfect toy and mom and dad bring it home for them and their life will be satisfied. But until they get that, Watch out. Just one glimpse, and we can be set off down a terrible track. Think about it. 
We even see stories about this in the Bible. Eve saw the fruit, and it was to be desired. David saw Bathsheba and desired her. The eyes are a very dangerous thing. Jesus himself notes this in Matthew 5, 27, 28, where he says, You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Just the look, that sinful intent, that sinful affection, and a look stirs it up. Are your eyes pure? Beware of feeding sinful cravings with what you see. This doesn't just have to be sensual images to stir a love for the world. It can be various temptations, other types of temptations, whether you see the fame or popularity or the large estate or all the money or the great car that someone else has and it stirs up that discontentment. I see it, I want it, I must have it. Or you see the famous YouTuber who's got all these followers or social media guru who has all the wisdom of the world, it seems, and one glance at that, and you're in a downward spiral that you, your life is meaningless. Everything is lacking. You are so discontent. Even things that are good, we can so easily twist to crave in an ungodly manner. Even in this state, living here in this state, we might struggle with seeing the opportunities of another state and think, that's not fair. I want to have that. I need that. And while those things might be good, we easily forget the sovereign Lord who is in control of all circumstances and puts us where he wants us to be. So the desires of the eyes must be on guard. And last, they're the pride of life. Or you, some translations say the boastful pride of life or the pride in possessions. It's a tricky section to translate, to know what it means, but we do know that pride is the idea of arrogance or boasting or exaggerated boasting. And the word here used for life or possessions, it's a term that can be very straightforward to me to, to translate as life, but it has more of the idea of the details of one's life, what you have and what you're sustained by. So the pride in possessions or the pride of life is the dangerous manifestation of self-exalting a selfish heart. The unreasonable attitude that what we have and what we are like is better than others. And it goes to the point of making sure that others know we have these great things. Look at what I've achieved. It's the look at me attitude. This pride is when I find comfort and I find security and all that I have. And so dependence upon God, let alone thankfulness to him, goes right out the window. And some of these things, again, are not necessarily bad, such as possessions of stuff or even qualities of life, peace, health, comfort, safety, security, love, friends, knowledge, on and on. These things aren't necessarily bad, but when we crave them and we must have them or else we can't be satisfied, then they become sinful longings. 
when I just got to have what I want or think I need. And in reality, these lusts only reveal the covetousness of man's heart. And we should put off that discontentment and instead put on thankfulness to God. This doesn't mean you can't own anything, you can't have possessions, and that you can't enjoy them. But it doesn't doesn't mean that you can't have relationships and friendships. God provides these things, and He wants us to enjoy them. But it does mean that we should not idolize them above God. Which means it comes down to a heart issue. Comes down to a heart issue. What you love, what you crave... And we see the reason provided. Why not to love these things in the world? It's because they're not from the Father, but they are from the world. We should not love the world because these things stand against in sinful rebellion against our Creator. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride in possessions, they come from all that is hostile to God. One writer said, I thought this was... Helpful. It says, the world is not simply a passive entity, but a rival for the allegiance of every person. A rival for your allegiance. The enemy does not want us to pursue godliness. He does not want us to have fellowship with the Father. He does not want us to have fellowship with one another. And the sinful enticements of the culture and its warped thinking originates from the dark and falling setting we live in. It is not neutral. It is corrupt. It wants to suck you in like a black hole and never let you escape. So we need to ask ourselves, what secret delights do I have that I need to repent of? What worldly cravings must I put away? Because 1 Peter 2.11 says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. The world and its cravings are not neutral. They are waging war for your attention and your devotion. So we ought to live our lives with, set upon the things of the Father, seeking the things of the Father, which is all that we have needed for life and godliness. Practically, these, you know, reading and studying the Bible, praying, worshiping, fellowshipping, evangelism, loving others, serving others, being with one another, gathering together, being involved in the church, caring for others, caring for our family, using all that we have for God's glory and making all our endeavors, even fun ones, to honor Him. So the second reason we're not to love the world is because of its corrupt nature. The things of the world are not from the Father. Next, we see the reason we're not to love the world, verse 17, is because it is crumbling away. You see the crumbling of the world in the first half of verse 17. He says, And the world is passing away along with its desires. The world is passing away along with its desires. John had previously said in verse 8 that the darkness is passing away. Here, darkness and world are similar. Both are passing away. This word here also, the verb used is present tense, meaning it's ongoing. The world, since Christ has come the first time, who is the true light, since that true light has shined, and then as He ascended and now 
His Spirit dwells in His people so that we are the light of the world. The light as a beacon continues to shine and the darkness is slowly fading away. And it is passive. The darkness is not choosing to, be, to fade away. It is being done to it. It is being forced to fade away. It is going out of existence. It is disappearing. This current God-hating world has a time limit. It will disappear entirely one day by the work of God. And God is moving all of time, all of history, toward His grand culmination when the sun will return and reign here on earth. And one day, after that millennial reign, all things will be made new while everything that opposed God will be cast into the lake of fire. Revelation 21.1 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Do not love the world because it is doomed. The lustful desires, this evil world system that hates God, the sinful pleasures we desire will be destroyed. God will bring righteous judgment. So don't follow the pursuits of this God-hating world. Don't follow your deceitful heart. Don't put anything in the place of God. If you do, then you will ultimately reveal that you never knew God, the God of light. You will pass away along with it because destruction is coming to those who reject God. So if you've not repented and trusted in Christ, do so today. Don't wait. John Owen famously said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Sin will lead to destruction. Are the secret delights we have worth our soul? Selfish and self-gratifying pursuits, they're only temporary. They do not fulfill, nor can they fulfill because they're going to fade away. And to love the world and its traits is to be devoted to fleeting and vain things. It's like loving a vacuum that sucks the life out of you. It always wants more. And John is warning the believers that love for the world does not end anywhere good. Sinful delights will not last into eternity, but they will fade away. So by implication, John wants his beloved children in the faith to pursue something that is lasting something that is eternal in value that will not crumble away, which brings us to the wonderful fourth point that John writes, the reason for not loving the world is because there is certainty of obedience to God. There is a certainty that comes along with obedience to God. He writes at the end there, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is the fourth and final reason. Don't love the world because those who live in obedience for the Lord have the sweet promise of eternal life. Now note he, so he shifts here with the word but. It's a contrast to what he's just said. Contrast to this passing away, fallen world system. And we have a blessing of abiding forever when we walk in obedience. Whoever does the will of God. Again, another present tense. John has loaded them here. It's ongoing. Whoever continually does the will of God. So what is the will of God then that he's referring to? Well, specifically in this text, it's to not love the sinful world or the things in it. Instead, to love the Father and live for the Father. 
By implication of this full section here that John has written, the believer is one who has been forgiven of their sins, loves the Father, pursues a life of devotion to the Father and His will. So if you love the Father, then you will desire to do what pleases Him. But let's be clear. That obedience, those works, they do not save. John is not saying that is what saves you. Some teach that all you need to do is say a special prayer. And Jesus comes in your heart and then you are free to go live however you want the rest of your life. We call this easy believism. Yeah, I acknowledge certain facts, certain truths, but I don't really got to change the way I live, right? I can, I can keep pursuing the things that make me happy. But Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So remember, it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone we're saved, not works. But having been saved, we strive to obey God because we love God. 1 John 2, 3 says, And by this we know that we have come to know Him. How do we know if we know God? If we keep His commandments. So the one who loves God will have a life of obedience that just verifies that confession. Joyful obedience reflects true belief. You know, there's a modern-day concept that you only live once. So which means that you should go ahead and indulge in your desires, take those chances, throw caution to the wind, and do whatever makes you happy. However, many of those pursuits are nothing but fleeting passions that are not faithfully obedient to the will of God. But know this, just because you say you love God does not mean that you are of God. The question is, does your life match what you believe and say? There are countless testimonies of people who, believing that at some point in their life, they they believed upon Jesus, so they became a Christian, but then later on, they went and lived for the world. You hear this a lot of college testimonies. Live for the world, hypocritical, sinful. But then later in life, being convicted, they then repent and trust in Christ, seeing that they were never beforehand truly of God. I was one of those people. I could have told you facts, but I did not want to submit to Jesus as my Lord. I wanted to play the game of hypocrisy. But there is a blessing and a wonderful reason to not love the world, and it's that we will abide forever. We will have eternal life as we trust in Christ. Listen to the promise Jesus gives, for this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. So we walk with the Lord continually and ongoing because we love God because He has shown so much love towards us. And those in Christ will have eternal life. Isn't that good news? It's great news. And so John would say, if you are a believer, press on in loving and living for God. Put away those sinful secret delights and fix your devotion to the Lord, depending upon Him for His grace to do it. Worldliness is an ever-present danger, even for the church. 
And we can heed John's warning that to follow God, we will not love the world. And John gave us four reasons not to love the world. Do not love it because it presents a conflict of loyalty, because it is corrupt, because it is, the world is crumbling away, and because there is hope and certainty in a life of obedience to God because of what God has done first. C.T. Studd wrote the well-known famous line, I think sums this well. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your graciousness that you show us, for the love that you show. And you showed that love first by sending your Son to die for sinners, for us, even when we were yet your enemies. And Father, so as you command us to not love the world or the things in the world, it ought to make sense. It ought to make sense that we would rather live for you, rather give our devotion to you because of what you have done for us. Father, may we be obedient to this command. And that, that, I realize that that comes along with a high cost. And it comes with the need for humility and a willingness to set aside our secret delights. So, Father, give us the grace to pursue conformity to Christ, to pursue a life that looks radically different from the sinful and dying world, a life that clings to you, walks faithfully to you, and one that gives you honor and glory in everything. Help us, Father. We again thank you for such amazing love. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.